Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature the prof, Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks was raised in a broken home. He recalled, My parents separated when I came along. I split the family. His father's mother reared him. And he described himself as a troublemaker during his elementary school years, probably just acting out a lot of insecurities. In a tribute to Dr. Hendricks, after his death in 2013, one of his students, Harry Hoffner, wrote, From the beginning of my Dallas Theological Seminary years, I was profoundly impressed by the teacher we then called Howie. I eventually decided to major in Christian education under the same man and always wondered if he actually did in his home what he so beautifully recommended to us in class. Then for a year, I actually had his three older children, Barb, Bev, and Bob, in children's church. I saw firsthand that Dr. Hendricks practiced what he preached. His children demonstrated their love for Jesus and his word. Dr. Hendricks' message today is Discipline of Children. Dr. Campbell, he and I are very close friends. We were in Wheaton together. I was the senior class president one year. He was the senior class president the next year. So he wrote to me, how's Dallas? I said, it's great. So he came down to Dallas. And we've been very close friends. And we have children who are quite close in age. And the interesting thing is, you know, Bob will come home and say, well, Dad, uh, Dr. Campbell's kids do it. And then I talked to Dr. Campbell, and lo and behold, he says, well, Dr. Hendricks' kids do it, <laughs> because the kids are sharp as a whip putting these two things together. And you know, it's a wonderful thing, my friends. Can I give you just something in passing that occurred to me? It's a wonderful thing to teach your children that we do what we do or don't do what we don't do on one basis, and that's the basis of the leadership of the Spirit in our life. Not on the basis of the Christian community. See, I got a lot of people who are patterning their lives after the Christian community, and my friend, the Christian community is going to pot. Our standard isn't the Christian community, it's Jesus Christ. Secondly, oh yes, don't use scorn or ridicule. Now, if you are of the male of the species, you are a master at this. The man is an artist at sarcasm. He walks in the front door and says, Well, wife, what are we having today for a burnt offering? Ha, ha, ha. And let's suppose he's trying to develop his wife, who is not exactly a Betty Crocker. <laughs> this is exactly the way to accomplish it, isn't it? She just comes right up out of the chair with tremendous motivation to be the finest cook in the world. As a man, I've often thought, if I were married and some guy came home with that, I think I'd take the egg and crack it over his head and say, you carried the ball. That's the male viewpoint. That's why God didn't make you that way. And you allow it to infect your relationship in your home. Most of you would never, never, never say to me what you have said 
to your wife. The person you love more than anyone else in all the world. So you're very polite to me. Very gracious to me. You always say yes, sir, and no, sir, and thank you, please, except with your wife. Many of us have said things to our children we would never say to anyone else in the world, and certainly not the way we said them. You get down to the office and you're the most polite guy in the office. Everybody says, man, laugh, whew. All the girls start flowering over you because, oh boy, there's the gentleman of the office. Then you go home and, <laughs> and the woman, you know, boy, out at the church, whoo, my, she's the paragon of graciousness, but at home. Let me give you an extreme illustration in order that you may see it. We had a student at the seminary some time ago who had about 147 IQ, which is slightly above average for your information. He also had an older sister who had 155. His father has a PhD degree. His mother has two master's degrees. When the second child came along with only 147, something of a dunce, in the process of learning how to speak, he started to stammer and stutter, very normal. But this was a blow to a PhD and to a woman with two master's degrees. It was really a blow to their pride to think that people of our intellectual capacity would have a child that stuttered. So every time the child would stutter or stammer, you know what they would do? They would make fun of him. He would do that, and so they talk back to him in the same way. Until you know what they have been successful in doing? They have been successful in driving this in so far that three prominent speech pathologists in Dallas are all convinced separately that this is a hopeless, incurable case. Now, how would you like to have a son who was called to the ministry where you are paid to speak. He's your son. He's called to the ministry and a guy can't say one sentence without getting hopelessly hung up. And then back off and realize you were the one who had the distinction of developing him into this kind of a limited person. Now, the interesting thing is that every one of you can see this in the extreme. What you cannot see is what you are doing every day to develop exactly the same thing. Every time you are primarily critical of your child when you ought to be commending, you are developing an emotional cripple. And what you ought to do is to run a tape recorder in your home. That is an assignment. Cut it out. Stop it. Quit it. Is what you hear over and over again. And you ask yourself, how many times did I say, thank you, son. I'm so proud of you. How many times did you say, man, do I ever appreciate effort like that? This kid put everything he had into it. It's still not up to par in terms of your ultimate standard. In terms of his capabilities right now, it's tremendous. If you want to develop an area of weakness in your child, I'll tell you a guaranteed way to develop it into an area of strength, and that is commend him. Every legitimate time you can. 
rather than criticize him. Third, don't use withdrawal of affection or attention. Johnny, don't do that. Mommy won't love you. Boo. You are selling your love too cheaply. It's in a bargain basement sale. Your real problem is that you've got conditional love. And I love my children no matter what they do. I do not always like what they do. But I love them. You see, Christ accepts you just as you are, not on the basis of your good works. And the reason I seek to please the Lord is not because I'm trying to earn brownie points, but because I'm so much in love with him that I want to please him. Ask yourself if that's the motivation you're giving to your child. Third, don't use promise of rewards or bribes. You may eliminate the problem now, but you'll create a greater one later. One of the interesting things in travel is that you get into all kinds of homes. And I have some very interesting experiences. I was in a home some time ago where the father said, uh, well, let's get the Bible for family worship. Got the Bible, you know, and, <laughs> and opened the thing. And I was watching Dennis the Menace sitting across from me. Sure enough, boy, it perked out. He finally looked. He says, hey, Dad, what in the world are we doing this for? Boy, I think if he'd been closer, that guy to pulverized him. I was in a home some time ago. It's a real attractive, bright-eyed little kid sitting across from me who would wink at me every now and then. And we were obviously communicating with our eyes, if no other way. And finally, Mom put on her dish five times as many mashed potatoes as I can eat. And that's saying something. Then we started what I call Operation Rhubarb. Sally, eat your mashed potatoes. Sally, eat your mashed potatoes. Sally, eat your mashed potatoes. Sally, won't you please eat your mashed potatoes for mommy? Sally, if you don't eat your mashed potatoes, you aren't going to get any dessert. And I'm watching Sally like a hawk. And sure enough, she's sweating it out. Pretty soon we cart off the dish and Mom brings in a double dessert. And little Sally looks across and... <laughs> and I said, you know, Sally's more brilliant than her mother. She's a student of her mother. And her mother is obviously not too much of a student of her. Every time you say to a child, look, if you do this, I'll give you a lollipop. Then what you're doing is creating a greater problem. Because when you become adults, nobody gives lollipops for mowing front lawns. My wife has never given me a lollipop. Isn't that a shame? I got to do the sad thing twice a week. Now that my kids are all gone, nobody left to do it but me. <laughs> you see, what you're trying to do is develop internal discipline and desire. It doesn't come by these external rewards. And then, don't discipline when angry. I always remember this one vividly because a dear lady came up at the conclusion of a workshop I had. She said, of all of the stupid things I've ever heard, that takes the cake. 
don't discipline when angry. Why, man, I can't discipline unless I'm angry. I got to work up a lather. And so we talked for a while, and it was perfectly obvious that before long she was saying to me, but I'm really not getting anywhere. See, because you hit them harder and harder till finally you break your hand. So you get yourself a paddle, and pretty soon you break the paddle. But all the time you're not getting your objectives accomplished. Because as we saw in our little diagram, this has nothing to do with the force or even the nature of the punishment. It has everything to do with the context. And I have often said to a parent, my friend, if you're not under control, I'll tell you what I'd suggest you do. I'd suggest you forget the discipline now. And go into your room and get down on your knees and ask the Spirit of God to get control of you. And when you are completely controlled, very sober, you understand exactly what you're doing and why, then walk into the child's room to administer the discipline, and you will be amazed to see the difference in results. By the way, this is why the number one problem in family rearing today is child beating. This is the one, number one reason why the average kid get hit, gets hit, and the worst place in all the world to hit a kid, that's in the back of the head. Because the average guy, the moment the kid goes into action and does something, he whips around and clips him like this, across the back of the head, the closest thing to him. And he's really not under control. He's not at all thinking of what he's doing, or he would never do this. And certainly not why he's doing what he's doing. And then the last one I want to suggest in negatives, never expect perfection. One of my great concerns about the Christian home today is that it is suffering from what I call a suffocating fog of moralism. And the result is you major on minors in your home. And you are expecting a child to do what the child is totally incapable of doing. Obviously, you want to have standards, but in the process of setting goals and standards, don't frustrate him, because that just aggravates his problem as well as yours. What you're trying to do is to motivate him, and what I'm looking for is not perfection. I'm looking for progress. And by the way, that's what your child is looking for in you. He's not looking for a perfect parent. I hope you're not trying to project that on him. He'll never get the message. What you are trying to produce is the realization that Jesus Christ is making a difference in my life. All right, let's come over on the positive side. I'd like to suggest a few things that you ought to do. The first thing I'd suggest to you is to impart the expectancy of obedience. Some of us never expected and were seldom disappointed. Impart the expectancy of obedience. I think the Lord brought an experience into my life some time ago which helped to bring this into focus. At a number of times, I have worked as a consultant for the juvenile department of the city of Dallas, and I've had some choice opportunities since I work on a volunteer basis and without pay. I have no strings attached. And they sent me out on a case and I went to the shack, and it was an August hot afternoon like it is right now in Dallas, about 103, 104, and I'd been out on a number of calls. 
and the delinquent involved came to the door. He's about 14 years of age. And he recognized me and he invited me to come in, invited me to have a seat on the sofa, if you could call it that. And then he asked me, would you like a drink of water? I said, boy, buddy, I sure would. That's so thoughtful of you. I really appreciate that. So the kid disappears, and he gets a peanut butter jar with some peanut butter left in it. And he fills it up with water. And he comes back, and just as he walked into the room to give me this dirty glass of peanut butter water, Mom shows up, and she hit the fan. She came unglued. She reamed that kid out. She cussed him as I've seldom heard a man curse an individual. And of course the kid was, you know, so traumatized in the process that, that he stumbled over this little beat up rug in front of the divan and the whole thing right down the front of me. And man, she clipped him and cussed him and drove him out of the room. She said, that kid, kid can't do anything right. I said, you know, lady, I hate to start this interview on a negative note, but I couldn't disagree with you more. I said, I'm proud of your son. Proud of him. Look at the water all over you. I said, how many young people do you know of his age who are so thoughtful that they would invite me to come in and sit down? So thoughtful and considerate that they would go get me a glass of water. Yeah, look at that dirty water and look where it is now. I said, lady, did you ever make a mistake? She said, he can't do anything wrong. I said, as long as you continue to say he can't, he won't. Now, you ask yourself the question, do you believe in your child? What do you project to him, that he or she is a problem or he or she is a potential? Do you expect him to obey, or do you say, well, it's par for the course. What else do you expect? And he seldom disappoints you. I have often said to a parent, my friend, your first task is to get on your boy or girl's team. You ought to be right on the front section of the cheering, front row of the cheering section, just yelling your head off with excitement. Secondly, help your child to evaluate his disobedience. Now, that rubs pretty hard because, you see, that will take something out of you. See, it's a lot easier to hit a kid than it is to take some time to sit down with them and say, hey, buddy, we really got fouled up again, didn't we? How are we going to get out of this one? How are we going to keep from getting into it the next time? Let's see if we can plan a better way. That takes time. That takes thought. That takes a lot of creativity. And many times I think this is what we're not willing to invest in a child. Third, allow the child to express his own viewpoint. So much of discipline is really arbitrary. It's a blow to your pride. And therefore you move into action. but you haven't really thought through all of the issues. I teach a wives class at the seminary. It happens to come on Thursday night, my hardest day, because Thursday is also faculty meeting. And in this particular year, I taught three classes 
on that day, plus an innocuous faculty meeting, plus the wives' challenging teaching session, which to me is one of the most important classes I teach at the seminary. And I got home about quarter of nine, a lot of counseling in between. Boy, I mean, I was wet. And I felt like I'd been drawn through a keyhole. And I walked through the front door, and here are my two boys, you know, in a rhubarb. Clear case of homicide. And so, you know, I go into action. Obviously, the older boy is the responsible one, so I discipline him. And I walk into the bedroom, and my lovely wife says, Sweetheart, you missed. <laughs> it's a wonderfully encouraging statement. I said, I missed. How did I miss? She said, Let me tell you what happened before you came. And then she filled me in on the total picture, which completely changed the dynamics. So I had to do what I think is the hardest thing for any parent to do. I had to go to my child and apologize. You ever have to do this? You ought to do it. It'll do something for you. I'll say nothing of your child. And my boy was whimpering and he was doing the dishes and uh, I went out and I put my arm around him. I said, Bob, I'm very sorry. I said, I acted too hastily. I really didn't know all that was involved, and I'm very sorry, and I want to apologize. I said, will you forgive me? I can still see him say, sure, Dad, puts his arm around me. He said, that's okay, we all make mistakes. And I think back on this thing, I don't know how many hundreds of times we all make mistakes. The problem is that sometimes what we're trying to do is to present ourselves as the perfect parent who never makes the mistake. I had a lady come to one of my classes teaching the Christian home, and man, did she ever come through loud and clear. She has five tremendous kids. I just enjoy, my wife and I enjoy spending time in this home. Real-life kids, not Dresden dolls, but people. Every one of these kids has a tiger in his tank, and it's, it, it just grabs me to be around them. I feel sorry for myself. I go over to visit them. And she came into my class, and a student asked her a question on a panel, and I'll never forget her explanation. She said, well, sir, I remember when my oldest daughter was about 16 and was so put out with the decision I made concerning the car that particular night. And she said, I got her in the bedroom and I sat down with her and I said to her, Phil, I want you to know that you're the first teenager I've ever had. I've never been down this road before. And I'm quite sure that I'm making some mistakes but I want you to know that I love you. And if I make any mistake, it will be because I don't understand what to do, but not because I don't want to do the right thing. You know, I think a student just about fell off the edge of the chair because, my friend, that is profound insight to communicate. And the interesting thing is, the child's reaction becomes vastly different because the week following, I invited this young girl to come to our class who is now married. And without her knowing anything about what her mother had said, she cited this as one of the critical experiences in her entire life that marked her and her relationship with her mother because she said, I have an honest mother. Not a perfect one, but an honest one. And that says worlds to a kid, because as you know, they despise phoniness. All right, here's another one. Remember, the goal of obedience is not 
outward conformity, but inward conviction and control. And this is what will change your whole ball game. Because you know what I found? I've discovered it's very easy to get outward conformity, at least to a certain age. You make a kid do anything you want. It's easy for the mother to go over and say, son, sit down. No. Don't sass me. Sit down. No. And she goes over and grabs him. Now you'll sit down. He says, that's right, mom. I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. And you know, we're covered with kids who will do all of the right things on the outside, but on the inside, they're covered over with resentment. Sure he goes to church. He goes to church because you got a 45 in his head. I want a kid who goes to church because he wants to fellowship with Jesus Christ and hear what God has to say in his word to him as a person. How do you get this type of thing? I'll tell you, you don't get it by constant outward conformity only without developing any inward conviction. Otherwise, what you're doing is lid setting. You know what happens when you sit on a lid? I'll tell you. The harder you sit on a lid, the harder you hold that lid down, the higher it's going to go when you take your hand off it. And if you don't believe me, you just go to any Christian college in America and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. I've seen rebels on a Christian college campus that'll put the average rebel on a university campus in the shade. And the reason is, boy, here I am now. Mom and Dad don't tell me to go to church. Wheaton College, they took a survey some time ago, the largest amount of water used in the dormitory between 11 and 12 o'clock on Sunday morning. See a Christian college. Christian college, you go to church, do you? What do you do, come around and flush them out of the room? Get the shotgun here, it's time to go to church. You love to go to church, don't you? And the same thing could be true in any other. Don't score Wheaton, my friend. I'll clue you. This is not a this is not an exception. What I'm trying to do is to get a kid who basically is going to make decisions on the basis of what's right, what's wrong, and what does the Lord want me to do in my life. You see, the object of rearing a boy, for example, is not to rear a good boy. We've got some of the finest boys you've ever seen at 42. Your job is to rear a good man. And the process of rearing a good man is the process of moving from complete dependency to complete independence. And that is a process. You have to feed this to a child over a period of time. Remember that discipline is a long-range program. You know how you should learn that? You should learn that if you ever learn to play checkers. I used to fashion myself to be a champion checker player. There was an older man in the community who was purported to be. I was convinced the reason he was is that he hadn't played me. So I hung around him one day and he'd have too much traffic. He said, hey, son, how would you like to play checkers? Man, tremendous. So we set up the checkers on the board. He said, okay, you go first. I said, great, we established the pattern of the game. We exchanged several moves. Pretty soon he fed me a checker. He said, jump me. I jumped and he fed me another checker. Jump me. And a third, and I thought, man, this is easier than I thought. And you know, as if it happened yesterday, I can still see a little puff on his pipe, a little wry smile break out on his face as he took a checker and went, 
king me. King me? How in the world did he get over there? And would you believe it, my friend, with one king, he wiped every checker I had off that board. That's when my liberal arts education began in playing checkers. See, no good checker player minds losing a couple checkers if you know where you're going. Did you lose some checkers last week? In your home? The question is, where are you going? Oh, a lady came running down to the seminary, told my secretary, I've got to have an appointment with Dr. Henderson. It's got to be today. And so she sandwiched it in between something else. And she walks into my office and she says, Professor, my child is a pervert. And she just cried like crazy. I said, how old is your child? Oh, he's four years of age. I said, what happened? Oh, he ran into the bathroom where my daughter was, was undressed. And he actually enjoyed it. And I said, you know, I got wonderful news for you. She said, you do? I said, you got the most normal person that has ever been created. It's a very creative, exploratory person. But you know what you do? You take an isolated experience like this and you extend it. It's going to be a pervert. Because you see it in isolation rather than in relation. The interesting thing is I can go around here to people who have older children and they'll tell you exactly the same thing happened. This is a normal part of growing up. I had two school teachers, the only two I ever remember. One was my fifth grade teacher, the other was my sixth grade teacher. My fifth grade teacher was Miss Simon, very appropriately named. Oh, boy, she was a beast out of the sea. She hated my you-know-what. She tied me to my seat with a rope with my hands behind my back like this because every time she'd go out of the room I'd go into action. She took mucilage paper, she started around here, went all the way around to the back and I'd sit there like this. She'd say, now Howard, you will sit still and keep quiet. Well, what else do you do <laughs> under these circumstances? And finally I was graduated for obvious reasons from her class and I went to my sixth grade teacher. She was Miss Nellie, six feet, four inches tall with a beautiful gray head. I used to think she was sort of a feminine version of Sherlock Holmes. And I thought if that dear woman had done nothing except stand erect, she would have done something for you. But I remember my first encounter with her because I walked into the classroom and she said, oh, your name is Howard Hendricks. She said, I've heard a lot about you. And I thought, here we go. But she said, I don't believe a word of it. You know, my friends, that woman threw down a challenge to me the likes of which I had never had in my life up to that point. I met the first woman who ever convinced me she believed in me, and I never let her down. I would knock myself out in that woman's class. I can still remember working like crazy at the desk to get this thing and then taking extra work and banging it out all the time. I'd catch a glance over at the window, a little pane of glass in it, and there framed in it was Miss Simon, my fifth grade teacher. She just come to see this thing which has come to pass. There he is, sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. <laughs> you know, I've often thought back to this, my friends, because I asked, what's the difference? I'll tell you, one lady saw me as a problem, and the other saw me as a potential. The interesting thing is to see what happened in the church that I attended. 
It celebrated its 40th anniversary some time ago and invited me to come back and preach at the banquet they had. I'll never forget it. After I got through, dear women came up. Oh, Howard, we're so proud of you. I didn't say anything, you understand. I'm a very gracious person. But I had the strongest urge to say, really, lady, you didn't help at all. <laughs> because I can count on that hand the people who ever saw me anything than a problem in that church. And by the way, there's some of you who are working with young people. And the greatest thing you can ever communicate is that you see a kid as a person in whom you have confidence. Because you see him not in terms of what he is, but in terms of what he can become. If you ever communicate that to a child, to a young person, you will communicate the most important thing you could possibly share with them. I believe in you. You are a significant person. God is going to use you. You've been listening to Dr. Howard G. Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.